Please turn your Bibles first to our scripture reading, which is taken from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 25. Hebrews 7, 11 to 25 is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is taken from Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 to 18. Joshua 24, 14 to 18. That'll be our focus. I'll begin reading at verse 1 of Joshua 24 to give uh, greater context to help us understand a little better <clears throat> about what is taking place in verses 14 to 28. So Hebrews 7, 11 to 25 is our scripture reading. Joshua 24, 14 to 18 is our sermon passage, but I'll begin reading at verse 1. First Joshua 7, 11 to 25. <clears throat> now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now turning to our sermon passage, Joshua chapter 24, verses 11 to 28. But I'll begin at verse 1 of Joshua 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, And led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, 
and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of the land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you. And, have nothing, and having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away. Every man to his inheritance. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we are thankful, O Lord, for what we have heard. We're thankful for what we've heard from the New Testament, what we've heard from the Old Testament. But we're thankful, Lord, because it is all your word. It is one. We're thankful that we can read from various portions of it written at widely disparate times. 
And still it is your one word. And we are grateful that we can trust it. We're grateful that it is you speaking to us. We are grateful, Lord, that it has the power to transform us as your spirit applies it to our minds. So we pray that you would indeed transform us by your word. We pray for your blessing upon us now as your word is preached. Please bless the one who preaches and the ones who hear. Help us all, O Lord, to worship you. Even as your word is preached, help us to be active listeners, to be engaged, and help us to bring glory to your holy name, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Now, if you only know one verse in the book of Joshua, that verse would probably be verse 15 from our passage this morning. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, maybe some of you knew the verse. Probably all of us have heard that verse at some point. You might not have known exactly where it came from. You might not have known that it was to be found in the book of Joshua. Some of you may have that verse in a frame on your wall. It's a very powerful verse. It's a bold verse, which captures for many of us our highest aspirations for our families. As for me and my house, many heads of households have said, we will serve the Lord. And the Israelites, in response to Joshua's challenge to choose this day whom they would serve, declared that they would indeed serve Yahweh. They gave the right answer. The answer that you and I would give if we were faced with a similar question. Verse 19 then might come as a bit of a surprise. Where Joshua says to the Israelites, and perhaps Joshua says to us today, you are not able to serve the Lord. And then he goes on to say why. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now imagine that verse on the walls of our homes. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You're not able to serve the Lord. Most people don't have the rest of the story on their walls, do they? But I think if we would be honest with ourselves, I am not able is a far closer reflection of reality For us then, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that I think you should take that verse down from your walls if you happen to have it up there. Keep it up. Because verse 15 contains the highest ideal that we have for our faith. We will serve the Lord. But verse 19 contains the all too sad reality. We are simply not able to do it. Not by ourselves. Now, our passage this morning is part of a covenant renewal ceremony that Joshua is conducting. And so it might might seem odd that he's telling them of their inability to keep the covenant that he's just told them they must keep. But as we'll see, though, though they aren't able to keep the covenant, though we aren't able to keep the covenant, God is. And that leads us to the thought that I would like for you to hold before you as we work our way through the sermon this morning. God keeps His side of the covenant, and through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God keeps your side of the covenant as well. Let me say that again. 
God keeps His side of the covenant. And through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God keeps your side of the covenant as well. Well, The sermon is divided into three points, three parts. The first, covenantal charge. The second, good intentions. And the third, a witness. Again, the first point of the sermon is covenantal charge. The second, good intentions. And the third point of the sermon, a witness. So let's turn to the first point of the sermon, covenantal charge. In verses 14 and 15, Joshua issues a charge to Israel. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. This charge that Joshua gives to Israel in verse 14 consists of three commands. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord, put away false gods. The commands that Joshua is giving in the charge that he issues to Israel are rooted in the facts Joshua stated about God in the first 13 verses of chapter 24. That's why it was important to go ahead and read that passage to you. And of course, our passage begins with this key word, therefore. In other words, Joshua is saying, because of what I've just told you about everything that God has done for you over all of these years, because He brought you out of the land of Egypt, because He caused you to persevere in the face of the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all of the other ites that inhabited the land that God was bringing them into, because I gave you this land, because you're now inhabiting cities that you did not build, you're reaping the fruit, the harvest from fields that you did not plant, because of all this, therefore... You must serve me. That's what the Lord is telling them. And so this then, our passage then, is the imperative section in response to the indicative section of the previous passage. In Scripture, the imperatives always follow the indicatives. The imperatives always follow a section which tells you why you ought to obey God's commands. God doesn't just give you a whole bunch of rules without telling you why you ought to obey them. And always the indicatives, those statements of fact, they always show you that you ought to be grateful for what God has done. And so your obedience to Him is a grateful obedience. And so Israel's obedience to these commands should be a loving response to all that God has done for them. So first Joshua commands Israel to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord will help prevent them from worshiping false gods. That is the number one concern that God has for his people when entering into the promised land because there are so many false gods to choose from to worship. They are to serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness, meaning simply that their service to God is to be rendered completely with their whole selves. They're They're not to hold anything in reserve. They're not to withhold from the Lord. Of course, that's exactly what happened with the sin of Achan, where he withheld from the Lord, and Israel suffered terribly because of his sin. They should love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And Joshua tells them that they should put away the false gods that their fathers served and the gods that the Amorites and the Canaanites served. Put them away. Destroy them. Get them out of your lives. There was always hanging over their heads this danger that they might return to the idol worship of their ancestors. And so that may very well be the concern that is expressed here through the prophet Joshua. 
In verse 15, he continues to challenge Israel. He says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what Joshua means here in verses 14 and 15 is, it, is, if, is that if they desire to serve other gods, then to them it is evil to serve Yahweh. He's casting it in the strongest negative terms possible. To serve idols is to think serving the Lord is evil. So that in light of that, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Now let's, let's bring it to our current context. Let's, let's bring it to this room. What does that mean about the idols that you and I serve? Do we really think of them as the, the kind of evil that Joshua presents to the Israelite people that they really are? Do we think of it in those terms? That if we serve idols, we are saying it's an evil thing to serve Yahweh, to serve the Lord? Well, that's how Joshua puts it. That's how the Lord puts it. That's how we're to understand idolatry. The Israelites have a choice set before them. You and I, we have a choice set before us. We can serve other gods or we can serve the Lord, but we cannot do both. Other gods, false gods, and the Lord, they are mutually exclusive of one another. And then at the end of verse 15, Joshua makes it clear whom he will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now just because it has been firmly stated this morning that people are not able to do what Joshua has commanded the Israelites, it doesn't mean that what Joshua says here is false. Just because you, are, you aren't able to do what God has commanded you to do, it doesn't mean that you just give up hope, that you don't even try. That's not what the Christian life is about. We're commanded to be obedient to God's commands. Notice what Joshua does not say here. He is the leader of God's people, but he is not so bold to speak for all of Israel, nor does he speak for his own tribe. He only speaks for his own family. Joshua has counted the cost. He can say with as much conviction as he can muster that he and his house will serve the Lord, but he can't speak for anyone else. Listen to what one commentator has to say about this. The covenant was concluded with individual families, and it remained the responsibility of each father to acquaint his children with its provisions, that is, the covenant's provisions. Christian fathers should chew on this. This old man Joshua, who will be with the Lord in a short time, is renewing his commitment to God on behalf of his family. This means that he is acknowledging again the responsibility that he has to uphold Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach these words diligently to your children. That's what Joshua is committing himself to. That is what he is vowing that he will do in serving the Lord. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, Good Intentions. In verses 16 to 18, the Israelites give an answer that everyone is hoping to hear. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. That's exactly what we want them to say. That's exactly what they knew they had to say, perhaps. This may just be a case of easy believism on their part. Despite the hardships that they saw early on as of late, the latter chapters of the book of Joshua, things have been going pretty well for them. 
They've received their allotments of land. They've just come into their inheritance. They're living in cities that they didn't build and harvesting crops they didn't plant. And so it may just be that they're saying what they know they've got to say in order to get through it. How many Sunday school teachers, when you've asked a question and the kids give the the standard Sunday school answer, Jesus. And it's true, it wasn't exactly the the specific answer to the question you were asking, but it's true and it's hard to dispute. Kids know that generally speaking in church, the answer to almost every question is Jesus. That's why it's so important, parents, for your children to know and to understand what they're getting themselves into when they are intending to take membership vows to join this church or any church. Now, many of you who have taken vows, whether it's membership vows in a church, whether it's uh, wedding vows, you understand the weight of those vows when you stood before God and, and the church or before witnesses and took those vows. And so it's important for anyone who wishes to join a church and, and take the vows to understand what the vows are that they're taking, to understand what they're getting themselves into. But it's especially important to determine if covenant children really understand what it means to join the church. Because they are vowing, in a sense, what the Israelites were vowing. They're vowing that they're going to live their lives according to what the Bible teaches. And that when their faith is truly tested, when they are uh, cast into the middle of the sea of doubt, they will keep on living according to what the Bible teaches. They're vowing that when they stray, when they err, that they will submit themselves to the discipline of the church when they take those vows. It's easy to say those things. It's easy to say yes, to give assent to vows when your life is going well and you're not facing any big challenges. It's much more important to keep your vows when everything starts falling apart in your life. Your vows carry forward. You take them now in that moment. You've taken those in the past in that moment, but they carry forward. They, They bind you in the future. And they can come back to haunt you if you decide you don't want to keep them any longer. And so we want people, including our covenant children, to join our church. But they must be aware of what it means to take the vows that we ask them to take. And it's not so clear with the Israelites in this particular case that they knew what they were getting themselves into. Now it's true, they do remember in verse 17 what the Lord has done for them. They cite his rescuing them from Egypt as a good reason for why they owe him their allegiance. In verse 18, they recount how the Lord drove out all of the Amorites from before them, referring to the conquest of Canaan. And then at the end of verse 18, they they draw the following conclusion. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. They are saying We forsake the false gods of our ancestors and the false gods of the Amorites. Yahweh is our God. We will serve Him alone. And we could say, in a very positive sense, that these, at the very least, these were good intentions. It might have been more than good intentions. They might have really, really meant it. But only time would show whether their words were true. And that brings us to the third point of the sermon, a witness Though the response was what most would be happy to hear, Joshua's next words show that he's less than fully convinced. Now, it may be true that he's just trying to test them. He's just trying to make sure they're not just giving a pat, rote answer. They're not just saying the thing that they think Joshua wants to hear. But it does seem that he's less than fully convinced. Verse 19 says, You are not able to to serve the Lord. 
For He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Now if we stop right there, we might as well pack it up and go home. And enjoy the rest of this day off. If we stop right there. One commentator said of this verse, Joshua's answer is perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. He denies that the people can do that which he has spent the entire chapter trying to get them to do. In essence, Joshua here is denying that the people can do what all of the Old Testament tells them they have to do. They are not able to serve the Lord. They were able. They could fully follow the pagan gods of their ancestors. They could fully follow the gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites. Maybe that's why they could so easily and casually state that they would serve the Lord. But Joshua will not permit Israel to remain deluded about whom they are now publicly professing to serve because the God of Israel, Yahweh, is not like those false gods. He is wholly, completely different. And the reasons that they are not able to serve the Lord are listed in the verse. First, God is holy. Unlike the false gods, Yahweh is perfectly holy. He is without sin. And this attribute of God sets him apart from all of creation. He is in a category all to himself. There is none beside him. There is none that is equal to him, much less greater than him. There is nothing in all of creation that even comes close. Now these other gods to which Israel might have sworn allegiance to are nothing in comparison to the God of Israel. Israel could have fashioned, have images fashioned to look like them and to which humans could bow down and worship. But the true God is not an earthly God like they are. There is nothing on earth or in all creation out of which an image can be made that could possibly bear a likeness to the God of Israel. Human hands cannot replicate His holiness. But God is so holy that those who serve Him must also be holy. Leviticus 19.2 says, Be holy as I am holy. And so God is unlike these other gods made by human hands because He is holy. He is not earthly. He is not cast out of the substances of the earth. The other reason that Israel is not, to, not able to serve the Lord is that God is a jealous God. They can't serve God perfectly because His demands upon them, His demands upon us, are perfect. This is the exact reason given in the second commandment, commandment regarding why they should not make graven images. Because God is a jealous God. And a commentator explained God's jealousy this way. See, when we think of jealousy, we think of it in earthly terms. And so when unbelievers read passages of Scripture where God talks about Himself being a jealous God, they think of it as like a jealous husband or a a jealous boyfriend. But this commentator explains God's jealousy this way. He loves them so much that He wants their undivided love in return. He will not share them with any other God. It's not that God is jealous for your love. He's jealous for His love. He will not waste His love on anything that is unworthy of His love. And if those who serve God are unfaithful to Him with other gods, He will not take it out on the other gods because they don't exist. Instead, He will punish those who have sworn to serve Him, but instead worshipped idols. 
And so it is because of God's exceedingly high standards that Joshua says Israel is not able to serve the Lord. And Joshua goes on to say in verse 19 that God would not forgive them their transgressions or their sins. Now how in the world do we understand this? Because we understand that God is is a God of forgiveness. He's the God of love. How can, can Joshua say, speaking the very words of the Lord, that he will not forgive their transgressions? Well, verse 20 helps us to understand this. He says there in verse 20, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And so God's unforgivingness here in verse 19 is contingent or dependent upon whether or not his people forsook him for foreign gods. John Calvin writes in his commentary, When it is said that he will not spare their wickedness, it does not refer to faults in general or to special faults, but is confined to gross denial of God. So it's not that God is a God who refuses to forgive any sin. We know that He does forgive sins, all manner of sins. Rather, He will not forgive the sin of absolute refusal to believe in Him. And so what are we dealing with here then in verse 20? Verse 19, verse 20. This then is the Old Testament reference to the New Testament's unforgivable sin. That's what we're dealing with. The absolute refusal to believe in the only, the one true God. That's the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin. And it is only by God's grace that anyone can keep from committing the unforgivable sin. That is a refusal to believe in God which persists to the end of your life. But, though Israel is not able, though we are not able, God is. Don't be left without hope. Who then can be saved? Well, if we're up to you and me, if we're up to the Israelites, if we're up to Joshua, no one can be saved. There's not a chance that anyone could be saved if it's left up to us. But God is able to save us. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. God is able to save. Thankfully, our salvation does not rest on our ability, but on God's ability. This is why the author of Hebrews can say in chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is how anyone can be saved. That is how the Israelites who were saved were saved. Not because they were able to keep God's commandments but because the Lord fulfilled their part of the covenant Himself. And so in response to what Joshua says in verse 21, the people, I'm sorry, verse 20, the people in verse 21 respond, no, but we will serve the Lord. They seem to be resolute. And Joshua tells them that they, in verse 22, that they are witnesses against themselves that they have chosen the Lord, and Israel acknowledged that they were witnesses against themselves. This is part of that covenant renewal ceremony. And Joshua then commands them to put away the foreign gods that were among them. And Israel responds in verse 24, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. 
Verse 25 says that Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And in verse 26, he said, we, we read there that he wrote these words in the book of the law of God, which was probably a copy of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And after he had written these words in the book of the law, he set up a large stone under the terebinth or an oak tree, which was beside the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the Lord. And Joshua says in verse 27 that this stone stood as a witness against them, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. This stone heard the words of God. And it heard their words in response. It was set up to serve as a reminder to Israel of all of God's promises to them, and also of the promises that they made when they took the vow. Now, though we are not able to keep our covenant commitments, just like the Israelites were not able to keep theirs, God is able to keep them for us. Though we are not able to be perfectly holy as God is holy, He covers our sins for us. But God's keeping our end of the covenant for us, His covering of our sins, it comes at a terrible price. But it's a price that you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, did not, do not have to pay. If you want to understand just how holy God is, just how sinful you are, just how high a price must be paid because of your sin, you need only consider the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross, we see God's perfect holiness. Sin must be punished because it is ultimate rebellion. It is cosmic rebellion against the Lord. But in the cross, we also see God's perfect mercy. The punishment for our sins was taken by God's one and only Son. Jesus was punished in our place so that we might be declared holy and transformed into holy servants of the Lord. And Christ's resurrection, which followed his death on the cross, is the proof that all of these things are true. If you have repented and, of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, all that is necessary for you to do in order to be saved has been done by him on your behalf. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't trust in him for your salvation alone, repent now. And believe. If you do not repent, then all of the curses, the severe judgment and punishment that comes in the fires of hell is reserved for you. You are not able. But God is able. And He has done everything that is needed for you to be forgiven for your sins and to be a part of His covenant people. God is a God. He is the only God. But He is a God who makes and keeps covenants. And He even keeps the part of the covenant that we are supposed to keep, but are not able to keep. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That's the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful to you because you are able, though we are not. 
you have done what we cannot do, what we would not do. What we would do is to have other gods before you. Other gods beside you. Other gods that we equate with you. But what you have done, O Lord, is to tear down our altars to false gods. What you have done is dragged us out of our sin and our misery. What you have done is brought our dead, cold, lifeless bodies to life. You've breathed into us. Lord, we are thankful that our salvation belongs to you. That you are responsible. We are thankful, O Lord. We're thankful for our inability. But we're even more thankful, O Lord, for your ability and your willingness to save. We pray that you would teach us to be grateful. We pray, O Lord, that you would teach us to be gratefully obedient. We pray that you would reform and conform our desires so that we would desire to do that which you command us to do. That by your Spirit we would walk according to your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep the vows that we have taken. And we pray, Lord, that when we fail, that when we sin, that rather than running away from you, that we would run to you in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.